Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. My name is Daniel Morn, and I've got Professor Phil Cowan here with me today. Thank you for coming, Phil. Thanks for the invitation, Daniel. It's uh, really good to have you because uh, you've done some really interesting work over the past, uh, well, several years, really. In Very many years. In psychopharmacology. And your particular area of interest is in antidepressant medication. Yes, basically the treatment of mood disorders, particularly depression that doesn't respond well to other treatments. Okay. And, well, could you just begin by telling us what your main areas of interest are in, in that field? I suppose it's trying to understand how the medicines might work, um, trying to understand what the underlying uh, pathophysiology is of the, of the condition, why some depressed people don't seem to recover as well as one would like, and then trying to come up with new treatments, mainly pharmacological in my particular case, that might be helpful in patients with that kind of problem. When you talk about depression, do you see it as a a unified entity or do you see depression as an umbrella diagnosis of which there are sort of many conditions within that? I I, I think it must be like that, that um, it's a common condition. The features are fairly variable. And I suppose when, when you're a psychiatrist, you tend to work in one particular area. So people who have quite severe depression, quite disabled by it, and not doing well with first-line treatment. So you have that particular group in mind when you work as a psychiatrist. So you're working at the more severe end of the spectrum compared to perhaps what most people might have encountered in their daily life with people they know who might have been depressed. You're thinking that the people you see are perhaps more functionally impaired or or does it look different is the character or nature of the condition particularly different is there something you look at or um i think that that's that's right daniel uh, because depression is very common and often treated very successfully in primary care and so people would respond to psychological treatments maybe first line antidepressant medication if that was necessary so I'd say that the people that I would see, and most psychiatrists, the, the depression would be unremitting. And um, that's a feature which causes a lot of distress for the patients, because if you're depressed, you often feel things aren't going to improve. And this is confirmation of it. So it's severe, it's long-standing, and it seems very hard to shift. Certainly true, as you said, in those circumstances, it can be functionally disabling. So people who are often very capable, very accomplished, find that they can't work properly um, and their personal lives are extremely disrupted. We've had antidepressants for over 50 years now as as psychiatrists. We've been using them effectively in many cases. Where's the uh, sort of the the, um, frontline advancing area in, in antidepressant research at the moment? I think the main advances in my professional career have been the fact that more antidepressants are available and they're safer and better tolerated, but by themselves they're not necessarily more effective than the older ones. So the failure to make more effective treatments has been a disappointment. On the other hand, because more drugs are available, you can usually find something that suits an individual. Moreover, it gives a chance for treatment combinations um, and some patients with resistant depression seem to respond to that approach. So I think practically we're doing better, but individually 
we haven't really got a drug that's made a huge difference in terms of effectiveness. You've done some work into uh, the effects of ketamine on people with with, uh, depression. I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit about that. Yes, that's um, an interesting development. Um, And it started from observations made in the United States that uh, intravenous ketamine, which is a widely used um, anaesthetic and has been used as a model for various psychiatric disorders, when given to patients with acute depression, made them feel much better, essentially back to normal, about an hour or two after the infusion of a sub-anaesthetic dose. Particularly intriguingly, in about half the patients, that effect persisted for a few days. So it was a striking effect, because normally antidepressants take a long time to work, several weeks. They don't work that fast, therefore. And though one can imagine treatments that work quickly, for example, sleep deprivation sometimes used in that way, it's unusual for a quick-acting effect to be sustained. Further, um, ketamine pharmacologically works in a very different way from our standard antidepressant treatment. It blocks a kind of um, glutamate receptor, so it's another neurotransmitter from the ones we normally think about in terms of antidepressant action. Um, And therefore, it may provide clues to a whole new class of antidepressants, which, as I was saying, we badly need to improve on what we're doing at the moment. That's that's really interesting. And and have you seen any... um... Well, has there, has there been any evidence suggesting that ketamine is potentially a, 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 an effective antidepressant that, or has an effect that lasts longer than a few days? People have tried various ways to extend the effect. So they, they've tried giving courses of treatment and they've tried using orally administered glutamate-like drugs in the hope of extending the effect of ketamine. Uh, My own experience is, thus far, that's not been as successful as one would like. And so one's left with a tantalising position that you can get people out of severe depression for for a few days or or a week, but you're not confident you'll be able to sustain it, and that's a major problem. Thank you. And you've touched on uh, on an issue in in depression uh, as a psychiatrist, which is that we have lots of drugs at our disposal now um, that we can use to help patients with their depression. But often there's, there's not much difference in the, in the efficacy or the effectiveness of that medication. There's often quite different side effect profiles. Yes. Is there, um, is there a, um, anything you could advise people who are beginning, um, or psychiatrists who are beginning treatment of, of somebody with depression? What, what, are there any particular class of drugs you would suggest to begin with? Or, and what's your standard sort of approach? Well, I think um, for most of us now, the early stages of treatment are set by guidelines. So if you read something like the NICE guidelines, it'll tell you what circumstances to think about medication and then what you might use first line. And so that's tackled very competently by GPs usually. For psychiatrists, as I said, you're a bit further down the line. People often tried a psychological treatment, perhaps a couple of the standard first line antidepressants, such as the um, SSRIs, fluoxetine, drugs like that. 
And so we're then left in that position, wondering what to do next. And I think you'd have to say that the treatment guidelines tend to be based on trials, evidence, and there's not a lot of evidence about next step treatments. So this is where your clinical experience and your knowledge of the patient becomes absolutely paramount. And what is it about the patient that helps you? What kind of things do you look for in a patient that helps you make those clinical decisions? I think there are a number of aspects. Obviously, in any psychiatric consultation, one of the fascinating things is that you have to live in a sort of first-person world trying to access the experience of the individual and also somehow synthesise that or fuse that with a third-person scientific notion of what's going on perhaps at a neurochemical neuropsychological level and that's one of the challenges one of the excitements of doing psychiatry so the first thing is to make a good emotional connection with the patient to really understand what their experiences are to put this depression in the context of their life and actually particularly helpful to get an idea of what's not right now but what would they be like if, if they were well how have things gone when they were well? That way you get, get a notion of how much it looks like, like an illness that somebody should be able to make a good recovery from. Often seeing a partner or friend is very helpful in that situation. So that's the first thing, a really thorough assessment at a psychological level. Have you done any research on, on this sort of level of, of clinical decision-making um, on, on particular drugs that happen in particular circumstances? Have you, uh, you've done some work with agomelatin and, and, and things like that, would that lead you into making a decision in a particular circumstance for the patient? Well, that's been, that's been a goal of uh, many researchers and uh, uh, many research authorities to try and stratify patients, to try and work out what treatment should you give someone, um, because there are many different drugs with slightly different pharmacological um, mechanisms. And often you just have to go through things in a careful, um, empirical way. And that can take several weeks or months, which obviously is very disheartening for someone who's depressed anyway and is rather despairing about the future. If there was a way we could identify what to use, that would be fantastic. But at the moment, the current treatments we've got, the current investigations, brain imaging, genes, um, clinical characteristics not terribly helpful in trying to predict what someone's actually going to be helped by. But that's an area where there needs to be substantial progress. So, in a sense, we are in a position where the crucial part of, of, of clinical decision-making and a lot of the research that you, you've done over the years has really pointed to the fact that we need a, a, a an accurate and um, sort of personal... Uh, engagement with the patient to really understand their situation and then to make decisions based yeah. based on that yeah there are uh, the old-fashioned medications tricyclic antidepressants and the modern modern medications the sort of yes. serotonin uh, based uh, medications do you feel looking back that we've uh, I know you said there's no there's no benefit in in effectiveness but do you think we've we've come a long way since then um, 
I think of the point of view of treating a broader range of people with depression, we probably have. My own feeling is actually, probably because I'm fairly um, elderly now, that the, the tricyclics are still a little bit more effective. But they're hard to take and they're dangerous in overdose, so they're not e easy to use. Uh, the SSRIs are effective for uh, many patients in primary care. They're much easier to take, they're safer, and so that is a kind of useful practical advance in treatment, even though they may not be any better than the older ones in terms of, of effectiveness. So we've talked a lot about the clinical aspects of, of how clinical decision making has changed, and in a sense we have a lot more options for treating a lot, uh, a lot dif of different types of people. In what ways has the knowledge developed? We've, we've, we've grown rapidly in our ability to image the brain, our ability to understand all the different neurochemicals and the synaptic processes that are going on. What, what do you think are the really the real advan advances in, no in knowledge about, about uh, uh, your, your work? Um, I think we're much more sophisticated in our understanding of what the problem represents, even though sometimes that just makes you realise how little you actually do know. But it certainly changed from when I was training in the sense people thought in terms of a single neurotransmitter as causing depression, too little serotonin, too little noradrenaline, or a particular brain region causing depression. And I think what we have now is a much more sophisticated understanding of the neural circuitry that underpins depression, the distributed circuitry that seems to somehow express emotional distress, and the way that the neurochemistry maps onto neuropsychology what serotonin actually doing in terms of people's experience? How does boosting serotonin change neuropsychological processes that can lead people to feel better? So I think we've got a fuller understanding. It's easier to talk to people about what you think is going wrong. Unfortunately, it hasn't led to new pharmacological treatments yet because this sort of distributed circuitry and more integrated understanding doesn't necessarily finger a particular molecule. I think in a way it might be more helpful for improving psychological treatments because they probably do work more at a systems level and perhaps understanding what's going wrong with the neuropsychological system might eventually lead to more targeted psychological treatments involving brain training. I, I could see that actually as being an outcome while we still struggle on to try and improve pharmacological treatment. Thank you. There was a recent uh, editorial by... Um, John Geddes, amongst others, in, in the BJ site, looking at how perhaps we need to uh, change the way we think about classifying bipolar disorder based on their response to lithium therapy. Yes. And I wonder whether you, um, you think that uh, there, there is a case for that in, in, in depression, because um, some people, they, 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 might, they might argue whether they are depressed or not, or they might, there might be some discussion about whether they, they, they have a, a particular type of depression or not. And I wonder whether there would be a case for, perhaps phenomenologically or, 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 uh, or diagnostically, understanding the condition better because of their response to a particular antidepressant. Yes, I think that's a very interesting idea. We, we keep trying to stratify, to classify, to understand people, because if we can distinguish very different kinds of disorder under this umbrella depression, we probably would be able to improve treatment. 
And it's interesting that the conventional ways of doing it by various clinical presentations, by genes, family history, hasn't been very successful. So doing it in terms of treatment response is a very intriguing idea and um, seems to me at a practical level to fit in with what people might do clinically anyway. So I'm in favour of it. And just just before we go, Phil, um, could you tell us a bit about what your thoughts are about being an academic psychiatrist? And have you enjoyed your have you enjoyed your career? Oh, I think I've been enormously lucky because you're dealing with the most um, important and interesting problems. As I said, it's this combination of being able to engage in people's experience to have the privilege of understanding someone's life history with them, and at the same time fusing that with a third person scientific objective, trying to help them both at a personal level and through scientific approaches. I can't think of anything which would be more rewarding. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for coming, and uh, thank you for tuning in to the Oxford University Psychiatry podcast series. We hope you listen to some more. Thank you.